Great to have you along for the ride. Thanks a lot for stopping by. Glad to have this man back. It's uh, U.S. Senator Rand Paul from the great state of Kentucky. Uh, Senator, how are you? Good to talk to you again. You know, quite good. Thanks for having me. You know, it filled my heart the other day to see that picture of you and your dad. I interviewed your dad plenty of times. So, you know, back when I was just doing Texas radio, now we're national, as you know. How is he? How's, how's Ron doing? He's doing great. Uh, I was there for his 88th birthday, wow. and we put we put that picture out just of our little celebration at home, and I think got over 7 million views. <laughs> because <laughs> everybody loves the Paul family. I mean, you guys have been, you've been so completely constitutional, libertarian even, showing us that freedoms and liberties really matter. I, I thought your dad should have been president. I'm guessing you thought he should have been as well. But he was the guy that really yeah. opened my eyes to the fact that we are not isolationists by not wanting to be the world's police, but we're just taking care of ourselves first, and we shouldn't have our nose in everything else. And that's sort of how you legislate too, right? Yeah, and it's sort of the opposite of what they say. It's like so many things in Washington. They say, oh, if you don't want to participate in war, you're an isolationist. That doesn't mean we don't want to trade with people, that we don't want to have diplomacy with people. We actually want more involvement, even with countries that are less than perfect. So as angry as I am, particularly now with China over you know the virus coming from their lab and then being dishonest, I don't want an embargo of China. I don't want to quit trading with China completely right. because I think that would be something that leads to isolationism and war. So it's, it's kind of funny they use the term because they think it's an effective uh, tool to combat us. But really, it's grown over time. People who are suspicious of foreign war and all the money and all the lives lost. Right now, among Republicans, 70% of Republicans or more actually think that we should you know, quit sending money to Ukraine. Yes. Uh, we don't have it in the first place. We're borrowing it. So it's actually become more the dominant position, particularly among voters. In Washington, still the vast majority of of uh, Republicans have never met a war they didn't love and never met a dollar they wouldn't borrow. But uh, at home, it's different. It's Senator Rand Paul. We appreciate you stopping by paul.senate.gov. Uh, Senator, do you know what victory looks like in Ukraine? I don't know why we sent dollar one there. I think that Europe should take care of it. Germany specifically should take care of it. But do you know what it's going to take for us to say, okay, we won. We're good now. Well, see, it depends on your perspective. If you live there and you're patriotic and you're Ukrainian, you're like, damn, victories get rid of the Russians. Yeah. But from a more practical point of view, you have to look at it and say, you know, 100,000 Ukrainians have died, 100,000 Russians have died. And I don't know if those numbers are correct. It's hard to get the accurate numbers, but a lot right. of thousands of people have died on both sides. You have to ask yourself, is there the possibility of a victory such that the death and the carnage can end and the country can rebuild and we can get back to peaceful terms? And if you're not looking for that, then basically what you're looking at is just, you know, money to buy more weapons to throw men into a meat grinder that just chews them, you know, limb by limb. And so, you know, there has to be an end. Most wars end with negotiation. People who have a, just a very superficial look at history think everything ends like Japan. You know, the war against Japan ended right. up with, with a nuclear weapon, took two nuclear weapons, but then it was all over, and it was an unconditional surrender. Um, Germany was somewhat the same way. But most wars are more like the Korean War. They come to a stalemate, and if you don't negotiate, just keep killing each other. And I think the Russian war, if we give indefinite arms to Ukraine, could be um a stalemate that goes on and on and on and so i do have sympathy for those in ukraine i think that you know the russia has been the aggressor 
but I don't know if there's a, enough money in China to pay for all this. And frankly, that's where it's got to come from because we don't have any money. We have to borrow the money from China to send it to Ukraine. It which doesn't make any sense. We're borrowing it from China, sending it to Ukraine, and China and Russia are now becoming good buds as we send our money. The whole thing is a circular screw-up that I think most Americans don't understand. Should we have, Rand, at this point, we're sending money to Ukraine. I, we just saw this last week. To support small business, to pay pensions, to keep government going, and to secure the border. What am I missing? Yeah, it's completely insane. And then you add on top of that Biden's policy of not drilling for oil in our country and right. being anti-fossil fuel. That's driven the price of oil up uh, internationally. So Russia, with all the sanctions, is probably producing and selling half as much oil, but at twice the price. Oh, so really, Russia hasn't suffered. I mean, the war has raised the price of oil, and overall, they aren't selling as much as they were. It's driven China more into the hands of Russia. It's, it's driven, you, know, you basically have all these pariah countries that are coming together and trading sort of as a block, you know, Iran, uh, North Korea, China, um, so, uh, Russia. So, you know, I, there has to be some discussion between adversaries. And this is where I think some of the neoconservatives are simplistic. They just think, oh, we don't like the Chinese, we don't like the Russians, we're not going to talk to them. It's like, well, even though I have my problems with both of those regimes, with socialism, communism, totalitarianism, I think we should have ongoing conversations every day with them, including nuclear arms control. Look, everybody wants to say they're Ronald Reagan, but Ronald Reagan actually did believe in nuclear arms control. Right. And I was actually privileged to meet with Gorbachev, had a meeting with him for an hour and a half towards the end of his life, and was able to discuss some of the most meaningful uh, decision-making. You know, everybody thought Ronald Reagan was a cowboy and he was going to start World War III, and nobody thought Gorbachev would, would meet for the meetings either. And it didn't start out well, but they finally eventually had like 23 different meetings on nuclear arms. Uh, when we met with Gorbachev, his interpreter was the same one that had been there at the time when, oh, wow. when they had the meetings with Reagan. So it was, uh, there's something more. But you know what had happened to Gorbachev in Russia? When we traveled to Russia, Gorbachev had become very unpopular, and Putin had become very, very popular. And in fact, it's grotesque, but Stalin was actually polling higher uh, posthumously to, than Gorbachev wow. because they saw Gorbachev as you know, as somebody who let the greater Soviet empire sort of crumble and break apart, and they blame him for that over that, and they see Putin as this strong nationalist. And none of that's a viewpoint that I agree with, but we need to understand it. We need to understand that Russia is in a nationalist kick and that the more sanctions we've done and the more we've driven NATO right up to their borders, the more we breed nationalism. And as, as bad as Putin is and all the things he's done until this war, I think he probably would have still won a, a real and open election in a landslide over there. And I think the war is bringing him down a notch and ultimately will be unpopular yeah. uh, in Russia. But uh, we need to think through things before we do them. And instead, we just say they're bad. And I don't know that we can say that. I, I think I lost yourself for a second there. Do I have you back? Yes, I got you. Good, good, good. Um, the thing that confuses Americans, and I think this is this is a fair confusion, we don't really know what Putin wants. We're told that Putin wants a land grab and wants to reunite the Soviet Union. Putin says he's going into Ukraine because it was his anyway, and he wants to get rid of the Nazis uh, who are in Ukraine, which is which is preposterous. I get it. I, I'm sure there are some some there, but I don't think that's why you roll a bunch of tanks in and kill a bunch of people. I don't know what's really going on there. Do you know exactly what's going on there? From the from, from the side of Putin, what, why did he do yeah, this? Yeah, probably, 
probably nobody ultimately knows what's in Putin's head, and you have okay. to take with a grain of salt what your adversaries say. But what I would say this is that anytime you try to have an intelligent discussion over this, the other side says, oh, you're justifying what Putin's doing. And it's not a justification, but we should look for an explanation. So one of the explanations is all of the Russian leaders and the Russian populace has said for several decades they do not want the countries that used to be part of the Soviet uh, uh, Russia, they do not want those countries to be part of NATO. Right. They see it as a real problem and an encroachment. They've told and, us and we, and we agreed to that, repeated. didn't we? At some point, didn't we agree that they would not? We did, and when Germany reunified and early 1990s, yeah. uh, Jim Baker, who worked for the first George Bush, promised NATO will go not one more inch farther. You know, Germany was going to be the exception. It unified. They were going to be part of NATO, but it wasn't going one one step further to the east. Right. And it continued to go further to the east. And the big provocations have been putting Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And the people, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, the ultra hawks, they've always been beating the drums to get them into NATO. Well, Russia looks at it and says, well, if they're at war or we occupy part of them, it'll be harder for them to join NATO. So there's actually a military strategy to Russia occupying part of these countries, in, and that's because it makes it virtually impossible for them to join NATO while there's a war going on, and Russia suffers from it also. And people will hear that argument and say, you're justifying it. saying, no, I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to give you an explanation right, and that's all for, we ask for why Russia may be acting that way. Yeah. And so, and I tell people all the time, my sympathies, look, are with the Ukrainians against the Russians. But it doesn't make sense. I have to, uh, my oath of office is to my country. Yes. I can't bankrupt my country for another country, even if it is a noble cause. But to make matters worse, if you look closely at Ukrainian politics, they're not exactly the shiny example of democracy that the Democrats and the big government Republicans would have you believe. Right. You know, they've canceled the elections. Zelensky says he, there are no more elections right now scheduled. So there was supposed to be an election next year for president. He's canceled it. That doesn't really sound like democracy that CNN says they're going to save right. all the time. We're going to save the world through uh, democracy. Well, exactly, and, and especially since we had an election during the Civil War. We had an election yeah. shortly after 9-11. So uh, I'm not really sure why, why this guy is called the beacon of democracy, but I guess that, that, that permeates the brains of people who are too busy then to keep up. It's Rand Paul, U.S. Senator, great state of Kentucky. Is there a limit on how much we'll, sp we'll send to Ukraine? And could you tell me... Could anybody tell me exactly how much we've sent and what it's been spent on? At least $113 billion. Wow. Uh, maybe, maybe half of that or a little more spent on the military and the ammunition. And uh, the, the, the neoconservatives up here say, oh, it's great. It's great for business. They bought $81 billion worth of stuff. We'll give them the money, and then they buy it. Right. The end, the end comes when they destroy the currency. And, uh, you know, we could have gradual inflation like we're having now. But what happens if one day we wake up and the world looks and says, you know, why not have a run on the dollar? Sometimes a run on a currency happens overnight. And just people wake up and lose confidence and they say, look, even Sweden's a better, be a better bet than the dollar right now. Sweden balances their annual budget. Sure, they have a big social safety net. Everything's free. The government pays for everything. You know what? They tax the hell out of everybody, and they have a balanced budget right. here in Sweden. They do in Germany, too. So someday someone's going to wake up and say, the U.S. is is not uh, acting in a wise way, and they're going to unload the dollar. When that day happens, when the dollar gets unloaded and there's a run on the dollar, 
we we go from not only being the world's strongest country, we go to a chaos. We go to you know chaotic, um, you know the chaotic destruction of a dollar ruins ruins not only an economy, it can destroy a civilization. And this has been coming for a long time. This is Cloward and Piven put in place. I think Obama tried to do it, and now Biden or whoever's running the joint now, it's not Biden, but whoever is in there now is trying to do it uh, on steroids. It's Rand Paul, senator from a great state of Kentucky. Uh, Rand, if you don't mind, any thoughts on what's happening in the House? Uh, the attempt to oust uh, Speaker McCarthy. I said I tuned into a little bit of the debate and uh, saw a little bit of the back and forth. I do side with uh, the argument that we should have individual spending bills, 12 individual spending bills, because then when there are differences, when the conservative Republican passes 12 individual spending bills in the House, they're sent to the Senate where the Republicans aren't as conservative, and frankly, the Democrats aren't at all. And what comes from the Senate will be much more liberal than each one of those bills will be fought out in conference committee. And you have much more leverage over each 24 bills or 12 bills than you do if it's one big omnibus. So I think the omnibus, I agree with Mad Case, the omnibuses are terrible. The, you know, putting all the bills in minibuses, omnibuses, continuing resolutions, all those are a terrible way to run the government. Right now, this year, there is no budget. Democrats in the Senate didn't pass a budget. Republicans in the House didn't pass the budget. So I think that there are great problems, and I think the debt deal was a disaster. I agree with him on the debt deal. The debt deal allows the budget to go up or allows the debt to go up an infinite amount. It set no dollar limit till like March of 2025 after the next president's already sworn in. And some are projecting it'll be $4 trillion. There's nothing conservative about that. But the defenders of the speaker stand up and say it's the most conservative deal ever. Um, but it's not. It wasn't well, it's not. He offered one point. He offered one point five trillion, and then was flipped almost immediately to four to six trillion. And as you said, and we call it the debt ceiling, but there isn't one, which doesn't make any sense. So I'm not really sure why people are mad that Gates is bringing up this argument. If, if nothing else, make them get in lockstep better and be more conservative. That's all he's asking. Yeah, it just becomes very personal because there's personalities involved yes. with it. But uh, I do agree with the arguments. I, I haven't thought about what I would do if I were over there because it's a difficult vote to to decide to take out the to take out the speaker. But uh, I do think that nobody seems to care. You know, look, nobody cares about the entitlements. Nobody cares about the military being overspending in the military or the entitlements, and that's about. I think it's over eighty percent of the budget are entitlements in the military. So by the time you get to that, what they're negotiating over and the spending they're talking about in our budgetary bills, it's really about 16% of the budget. And so when McCarthy complains and says, what do you expect me to do? You only told me I could bargain over 16%. There's some truth to that also, but that doesn't absolve the people of not looking at entitlements, not looking at the military, and not looking at all of the spending. This is why when we've tried to balance it, we look at every bit of spending. We don't exempt anything, but then a 1% cut actually has real savings. So really you have to cut across the board everything, but I also think when it's a smaller percentage, like 1% or 2%, I think you could actually do that to Medicare and not right. change anybody's health care. You could just do it by cutting out overhead and waste. And, and, and then they'll just yell and scream that you guys want to get rid of Medicare again, which is bogus. It's Senator Rand Paul. Yeah. Go follow him on all the social media sites. Paul.Senate.gov is his website. Before I let you go, you got to tell me about this uh, this bill that you're introducing, Educating Responsible Future Hunters Act. Um, so I love that you're doing this because everybody tries to make it that firearms are bad, hunting is bad, you need one bullet to shoot a deer. You know, the whole thing is just a dumb argument. And we've got young people that wouldn't know what to do with a, with a firearm or with a bow um, if they were given the chance. So I like this. So fill us in on this. 
every time they pass gun control up here, they promise you it's not going to harm any legal hunting, not going to harm any legal owners. We're just going after the criminals. And we always warn that it's going to be a lot worse than they think. So this is part of a gun control bill from a little over a year ago. We warned them that it would end archery and hunting programs in high schools. Right. So this is a Biden probably an overwrought interpretation of that bill, but Biden has interpreted the bill to mean that you can get rid of these programs in high school level for archery and hunting. And it's exactly the wrong thing to do. I've never met somebody who is either an avid hunter or avidly into marketing isn't also avidly into safety. Right. I'm not an expert, and so every time I go shoot, I've probably shot two or three dozen times. I go out, but I'm always very aware and listen to the safety briefing. And you know what? The people who handle guns are, are some of the most safe people you'll meet. They really know what they're doing, and they try to teach this to the kids. Same with archery, which is just an amazing sport. I have a somebody who works for me in my office. His son was a, in, in the state finals for archery. Oh, nice. It's just a wonderful sport, and we're in a very rural state, so we have a bunch of archery and hunting programs. And for Biden to think somehow he's going to save lives by cutting down on it, when really they're actually being taught the proper way to handle weapons, I think it is just a disgrace. But we have a bill to try to reverse that. Good. So we have a bill that would reverse this and allow these archery and hunting programs to continue. You know, it wasn't that long ago. I, was in, well, I guess it was a long time ago now that I was in high school. But in South Florida, you had the guys with the pickup trucks and their gun rack in the back, and the shotgun was right there, the rifle was right there. We never worried about it. We vilified the firearm when we should be taking care of mental health. And I, I know that you're an advocate of that. I'm glad that you're doing this. I live in rural Texas, and we should be able to, to not be, you know, hamstrung by somebody in Washington that has no clue what, the, with, with, what our community likes to do. Without question. And in the days when every guy had a... Uh, shotgun in his truck. There weren't shootings in the school. So something's happened. Something's wrong. Yes. There is a problem. So, I mean, I think we shouldn't ignore the arguments that there's not a problem. There is a problem. But you're right. It's a mental health problem. Half the kids in these schools are on drugs, not just illegal drugs, are on legal drugs, yes. or on antidepressants, or on mood altering drugs, or all on Adderall. And, you know, you name it, all these kids are on it. And we've just over medicated our kids, and then we under exercise them, and we put them like zombies in front of video games. And when I was a kid, we would play for three or four hours, and, and I grew up in Texas too. And yeah. so in Texas, we didn't, your mom wasn't there giving you a water bottle. You knew you were dehydrated <laughs> when you. When your tongue stuck to the side of your mouth, right. and we called it cotton mouth. And then you went to the hose to get water. So uh, we need a little bit more of that to toughen these kids up and t take away their phones and stick them outside in the hot sun, let them play play ball for, for a few hours. It's uh, U.S. Senator Rand Paul, great state of Kentucky. Rand, thanks for, uh, for making time for us. Best to your dad, okay? Absolutely. Thanks. Appreciate you. We're back after this. Stay right here. This is the Joe Pegg Show. Appreciate Senator Rand Paul coming on. Great information, great insight, of course. Another big hour coming your way. Don't miss Attorney General Andrew Bailey from Missouri next hour on the Joe Pag Show. This is the Joe Pag Show.